Um, so last week, we began a series uh, called The Problem of Truth, um, and we kind of talked about causality, and that truth has layers to it. It's not just a picked flower um, and just the, the, the top thing that you see, and it's divorced from what gives rise to it, but there's actually this causal chain, and we only see the top layer. And so, you know, we talked about the problem of truth and causality, and this week we're kind of almost talking about the same layer of depth, but just getting at it a different way. And kind of just want to begin it by, by talking about this. I've always been intrigued by the idea of one question. Like if you could boil all of Scripture down, because I saw a book this way one time, and I thought, wow, that's cool. I didn't like the guy's answer, but, but I thought the title was really cool, right? Um, if you, could, if you could boil it all down in Scripture to what the, the most essential question is, like what would it be? And I think why that intrigues me is it's like a home run thing. You know what I mean? It's like swinging for the fences. You just boil it all down to one thing. It's like the home run question. And, and I, I, I'm attracted to that kind of swing for the fences mentality. Um, I think along those lines right now with this economy, like what's that one home run? Um, the answer is getting hit by the pitch, just so you know. Um, but just trying to figure out, like, what's that? By the way, uh, you know, I quit softball last summer when I realized that swinging for the fences only got me out of the infield, you know, which was really embarrassing. Um, but swinging for the fences and just trying to figure out what's that one question that you could boil it all down to. And, and I think it, it just really gets us thinking, like, yeah, what, what is essential? What's really essential? Like, if you just took all the fluff away, what's essential? Um, and I think if I had to give my stab at it, it would, it would be this. If there was one question in, in Scripture, it would be a question posed by, by God and by Jesus. And, and the question is, will you follow me? Will you follow me? And I think at first that question seems really easy because we focus on the follow part. And we have a category for that. And it's, it's following. Yeah, okay, you're God. The idea is following. Sure, you know, follow. Um, and we kind, of, we kind of think it's an easy thing. But that was the question with Adam and Eve. Here you go, Adam and Eve, will you follow me? Abraham, here's your calling, will you follow me? Moses, here's your calling, will you follow me? Uh, Jesus, with his disciples, he would, just, he would simply just walk up and say, hey, follow me, and, and kind of see where they're at. But it was kind of always the call. You see it all throughout Scripture, and it seems relatively simple. The reality is, is that even if we think we're following, even if we commit to follow, it doesn't always really work like Adam and Eve, like Judas, like Simon in the book of Acts, this guy who saw uh, the power of, of God working through the apostles and, and kind of went up to him and said, how do I buy that? Like, I want that. And we began to see that in following, there's a true kind of following, and then there's an, an untrue kind of following, and it has to do with incentive. It has to do with, with what you're thinking and, and what is true about your desires. Because following God, the way God asks the question, means we surrender all, we submit, and we are in a dependent position where he leads and we follow. Judas and Israel, when, when God 
There's a whole book of the Bible that likens the nation of Israel to a harlot. A uh, whole book of the Bible, and, and then Simon, and it, it speaks to a type of acknowledging God or, or seeming to follow God, but what really is going on is that you're saying, I'm going to put my, myself in God's camp because God is a source of, of power and opportunity and blessing, and that will serve my, my desires. So what's actually the incentive here for me to follow God isn't God, but what God can do for me um, apart from him, which is a really paradoxical thing. So there's a type of following God that God asks us to do, which is we leave everything, and the incentive is being with God, following God, and being in that relationship, and, and finding our joy there. And then there's a type of following God, which really is a pseudo kind of following God, which is saying, I'm just going to be in God's camp or near God so that I can utilize God, leverage God to serve my needs, my agenda. And what's really going on now is God is supposed to kind of follow me. Uh, And so the difference there is incentive. What's my incentive? What's driving me? What's my motive? And so that question, will you follow me, when we really begin to look at it, turns out that, that the, the real question in it isn't the follow part, but the will you part. That's the real question. Will, will you follow me? And so I think when we understand that, which is a problem of truth, by the way, it's last week we talked about truth has to be really, really deep. This week, we're kind of saying, how do we know if it's true? How do we know if we're true? How do we know if what is true about somebody that claims to be following God? So it's a little bit more of a diagnostic question. You guys understand what I mean by diagnostic question? It's saying truth has to be here in the soil, in the heart, at the core of our being. And a diagnostic question is saying, is that what's really going on? Or something else going on. And so when we understand this, we understand a little bit, I think we understand a little bit more of what Jesus is doing in Scripture with a lot of his interactions with people. Now I want to get two categories on the table and then I want to look at several passages of Christ and I think hopefully we can see them a, a little bit more clearly and understand what, I mean there was just a simplistic beauty about Jesus' ministry. It was just calling people to follow him and then helping to try and surface, either for themselves or for other people, what was really, what was true, what was really going on. Um, so here's the two categories I want to try and put before us. The first one is private access. In uh, philosophy, it's philosophy of mind, there's this interesting paradox, okay, uh, that as much as we get after things with, with neuroscience and brain science and mapping the brain and, and un- understanding that if we energize a certain sector of our brain, it's going to make us feel a certain way. Or As much as we understand those things, it will always require the individual to, to agree, to say, yeah, what you think on your, your screen or your computer is actually going on is what's going on. Okay, We, we have private access to our own mental states. No computer can adequately express what the feeling of red 
um, or, or the feeling of hurt feels like to you. Does that make sense? That is a first-person experience. It's something that we have private access to, that, that no science, no computer can 100% know for certain how it feels for you to see something or to feel something. You have to say, yeah, your, your language, your scientific language is pretty accurate. But we always have to authenticate whatever science is going to come up with that way. It's a really interesting facet of, of brain science, okay? Um, is that reality that we ourselves in God are the only ones that really know what's in our heart, okay? So you take that thought, that initial thought, and then you couple it with this. And this is a fascinating distinction. I want to kind of explain it well so that you understand it, but but you couple the private access that you or we alone are the ones that have access to what's really going on in our heart uh, with this. There's two kinds, and if you want, you can write this down and think about it later. Okay, there's two kinds of memories. There's, I, I did a whole, uh, like I got really off on this when I was in grad school. Like I did a, a private, like an independent study class on love. Whole class was on love with a a guy who taught at Rosemead School of Psychology who's basically it's a doctoral program and he taught in that program and he proctored my independent study and his whole uh, area of expertise was on this distinction and so I kind of got bored with, with love after a little while and, uh, and started getting really excited about like this whole distinction of his and, and that whole area of psychology but here's the thing we're all really acquainted with it but there are two kinds of memory there's explicit memory, and there's implicit memory. There's explicit memory and implicit memory. Explicit memory is simply this. Uh, if I choose to right now remember what it felt like um, last summer getting hurt on an error at second base and hurting my ribs playing church softball with everybody watching, um, when I decided that I was done with softball, if I choose to remember that experience, it's explicit. Okay, it's, it's in my memory. I'm, I'm consciously aware of it. If you uh, are remembering right now what you need to do this week, if you're remembering the movie you saw last night, if you're remembering the rain that, that on the way in, if you, whatever you are remembering at a conscious level, it's explicit. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here's the, here's the other kind of memory, implicit. It's memory that you have or memories that you have that uh, affect things, but you're not consciously thinking of them or consciously aware of them. Okay? Uh, when you walked in here, you had muscle memory on, on what it meant to walk, how to walk, how to sit down in that chair right there, how to get your coffee, those are all things you learned somewhere like as you were growing, right? And you don't think of them, you just do them. You kind of remember them. Does that make sense? So muscle memory and um, motives sometimes and, and everything else below the surface is implicit memory. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Your implicit memories can actually affect your emotional states, okay? So in grad school, when I walked out of the library 
and the alarm went off because I had library books that I hadn't checked out, you know, lost track of it, whatever, and it kind of freaked me out, you know, and heart was racing, all that other stuff. Um, what happens is then over the next couple of years, every time you get close to that little, that little um, gate, that little electronic security gate, my heart would start racing. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't consciously remembering. I wasn't even thinking about it, but I, I'd get nervous every time I do that. I, I wasn't always a great kid, and to this day, I'm a pastor, okay? When, a, when I see a cop, I immediately think, you know, of things I need to start hiding, you know? <laughs> and, and my heart's racing. And I'm, I'm, I have four kids. I'm 37. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor, you know, I'm, I'm every cop's best friend, but like I panic and I immediately start thinking. And, and I'm not, it's like, it's this mechanism in me. Okay? That's an implicit memory. Uh, some of you that were really, had a, had a difficult upbringing. You, you sense little cues in other people and you don't think this person's going to walk out on me like my parents did or my friend did or my spouse did. But you sense something and all of a sudden you find that you're really insecure. You're not thinking about your dad who walked out on you. But, but all of a sudden you're, you're just filled with all these insecurities. And what's going on, we, call, we talk about this as buttons. We all, we all use this in our common expressions with each other. We just don't have those fancy words, right? But, you know, so-and-so has a button. Watch this. Let me, you know, let me pick on whoever. Let me, you know, poke at it. And, and you get a reaction. And that reaction is not commensurate with the input. You know, the output doesn't fit the input. It's because, man, that person had something happen and it created a, a memory. And they don't always remember it explicitly, but in their body or in their mind, in their subconscious, there's triggers going on. And it can even affect uh, emotions or or a flutter in the stomach, or tension in your shoulders, or, or anything else like that. Does that make sense? Those implicit memories, the, the wiring that's going on in us, affects our decision-making. It affects how we see things. It affects our confidence levels. It affects the degree to which we desire or feel like we have to have certain things, it's such a, a layer of depth in us, yet it's a grid and a filter for how we interact with, with reality. And so when you put those two things together, that only we have access to what's going on, but half of what's going on we're not even really paying attention to, means that what's really true about our motives and our incentives and what we're, what we're really buying off on when we say we're going to follow God is a, is a really murky thing. And half the time, what we really mean by saying we're going to follow Jesus or follow God, we don't even know ourselves what we really mean by that. Does that make sense? So Jesus spends his time trying to draw to the surface using diagnostic questions, deeper truths. He tries to put it in front of people so that 
explicitly with their, their level of consciousness and awareness, they can see what's true beneath the surface. So let's turn to a few passages and, and try and see some of this. Let's start in Matthew chapter 20. Actually, instead, let's turn to Matthew 22, and we'll just start there. And we'll read uh, the parable of the wedding banquet. This is a parable Jesus gives, and remember, his whole call was for people to come. So then Jesus gives this parable of the kingdom, beginning in chapter 22, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, and he sent his servants he sent his servants to those who had been invited to come, to the invitation to follow, to be there, to be with. And he sent his servants to those who had been invited to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Let's just stop right there. My best stuff has been prepared. It means the value is high, okay? And then everything is ready, which means that the time urgency is now. So the message is uh, it's, it's really good and it's really valuable and the urgency is high. What would cause people to not come to something when the value is great and the urgency is high? that their motivation, their desires, their incentives are tied to something else that is greater in their minds. Right? We, we've all been like invited to a wedding that we haven't gone to. Sorry, Nate, I'm serious. The kids were sick. It's out here. But uh, we've all been invited to weddings we didn't go to. Why did we not go to those weddings? Now, for a hundred different reasons, from I don't like her anyways, you know, to the kids are sick, to um, there's just something else urgent that came up, there, there's a competing value that's greater. So they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Their things were greater than the value and the urgency of this king and his banquet. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. And the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. They don't deserve it because they don't value it. I don't, you know, and so the king is beginning to go, Man, I don't like them. I don't like them. I'm not important enough to them. They don't deserve my banquet. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes? 
And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So there's two kinds of bad people here. The bad people show up both outside, this category of bad show up both outside the wedding banquet and inside the wedding banquet. They're the people that didn't value it enough so they didn't come. And then there's the guy who came but didn't value it. These are the people that say it's all going to fit around me. Whether they come or whether they don't come, it's still all, all about them. Does that make sense? That's one category of bad. The other category of bad is what we typically think of as bad. And Jesus uses the word bad here on purpose. He says, go invite the good and the bad. What this category of bad is, is social outcasts, dirty people, messy people, sinners. This category of bad, though, ends up not being bad in the story. And that's a really fascinating thing. The bad that is bad for the story are the people that don't value, don't really buy in on what's being offered. They either completely reject it or they pretend and they come hang out for the food, but they're not really caring about God at the center. They want to be in the camp. They want the blessings, but they don't really want to buy in and follow. Does that make sense? It's really perplexing, though, because the morally bad that Jesus is talking about, um, Jesus doesn't condemn them. And we begin to realize Jesus doesn't really condemn the sinners all that much. Why? Because the sinners that Jesus interacts with are, they've struck out. They're usually miserable. They're usually hurt. They're usually beat up. All they want, their incentive, is to be lifted out of the pit, Psalm 40. Just that God would take them out of the pit and set their their feet on a rock and that they would then be able to be with God and not know the torment they're already experiencing experiencing, which is all that. I mean, sin doesn't satisfy. You sin long enough, you realize it doesn't satisfy. Your addictions don't satisfy. They become these gaping wounds or these itches that you have to keep scratching, and, and it tears at your relationship, your, your relationship with your spouse or your kids or your own self-worth or your work or your relationship with God, and you get addicted to this thing, and you have to keep kind of going back to it for any little ounce of happiness that you can find but more and more you just feel empty and depressed and you don't want it and so Jesus finds these people he forgives them he lifts them up and says don't sin anymore and they're like yeah I didn't want to and then they they want to follow him and so these kinds of quote-unquote, bad people in terms of society, Jesus always loves them. Why? They're so ready to give everything away and actually start following all the way. 
Because what they, they've got, they, don't, they know they don't, they don't want. And so they're willing to trade that off. We miss something so crucial in Jesus' teachings that he doesn't go around looking for bad to condemn it. He goes around looking for a quote-unquote bad to redeem it. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. And frankly, you rich or you healthy or you self-sufficient, you look down on me. You think you're greater than me. You, you try to use me. And I can't do anything with you. You're not willing to trade what you've got for what I'm willing to give you or, or, or what I've got for you. But the sick, man, um, they're willing to come. And it's a really fascinating thing that Jesus, when he's talking to people, is usually trying to talk to the self-sufficient and to to surface for them their self-sufficiency, that they don't have this radical desire or willingness to follow, to, to, to get what's in the way out of the way so that they can truly be connected to God and follow him rather than just utilizing him. The sinners, it's a real simple, open, shut thing. He sees them, they're sick, and it's an opportunity to redeem them. But their desire to follow him is just so much more apparent. The diagnostic question is usually aimed at the Christians. I have a a friend who wrote a book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians. It's a paradoxical book, but there's a truth to it because Jesus came, and who did he predominantly talk to? He predominantly talked to the religious people. What was he trying to do when he talked to the religious people? Get them to actually believe and not just be a cultural believer. If Jesus were to come today, one of the things he would do is he would look at the cultural Christians, try and surface the tension of we value so many things that, it, that it's like light pollution when you can't see the stars in L.A. or whatever, that it, that it drowns out God. And he would try and show us that because he would care about saving Christians. Does that make sense? And he would ask diagnostic questions to help us see that we think we're following many times when we're not really following, that we've been invited, we've been called into this relationship, we, we have all the opportunities but we're not really intent on coming to the wedding banquet or prioritizing that above our own things. Turn over just a page. Matthew 19, we see this. This is a famous passage, but I want to set it in this new context. Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, Matthew 19, verse 16, came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what... What good thing must I do to get eternal life? This is a salvation question. What good thing must I do to to get eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. It's funny, Jesus models first, look, I'm in submission to the Father. I want to make sure you understand that in talking to me, the real thing here is where is God in this equation? fascinating little thing. And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And Jesus replies, 
Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother and love your neighbors yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. So what do I still lack? I want to make sure I got the A+. And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The question was, will you follow me, wasn't it? I mean, that's really another way to rephrase this question. And the young man heard this, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. So he was willing to follow. Hey, I've done all those since birth. I'm on my way here, Jesus. Jesus says, oh, yeah? Will you really follow me? Go do this. And the guy ends up failing the test and he walks away sad because he had great wealth. And then Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, I'll tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. They were like, man, that guy was religious. He was already in it seemed. Who can be saved then? That's, I mean, that's what they said. They were astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, that means us, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are fat first will be last and many who are last will be first. Okay, so let's break that down again. Jesus is trying to ask diagnostic questions because this idea of follow is just really simple. I show up for church, I wear the right bracelet, I listen to the right radio stations. This guy that asked Jesus, man, was, he knew his Bible, he was, he was doing all the right things, um, he looked the right way, he wasn't one of those bad sinners, he wasn't one of those bad people. And so Jesus asks a diagnostic question for that individual. Jesus knew him. He knew he wasn't really sold out to God, that he had his life all arranged, and God, he wanted God to fit in to what he was doing. And Jesus says, let me flip that on you. Let me just flip it on you and make sure you have 100% God and 0% you. Go sell your possessions. And the guy couldn't do it. Jesus surfaced the truth that this man had, probably deeper than he even realized, that he really wasn't, willing. Will you follow me? He wasn't willing to really follow. And these disciples are astonished and they say, man, that looks really tough. And Jesus says, hey, with man this is impossible, but with God, God can take fertile soil and plant true belief in it. That's why he takes the humble and he raises them up, but the proud he can do nothing with. 
If you think you got it all, God cannot plant seeds in you that will actually grow spiritually. But so he said, with God, this is possible. God can plant that seed in you. And then he goes on, he says, you know, his disciples are like, man, where does that leave us? And he says, man, you guys are fine. You guys are fine. I know you left everything. And you know what? Not only that, but anyone who leaves this, 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 or this will inherit many, many times as much. Do you see the interesting shift there? What did Jesus not say? He didn't say, Anyone who goes and sells all they possess and gives to the poor, like that guy wouldn't, will inherit eternal life. What he does say is representative categories. You've left houses, security, or brothers or sisters, camaraderie, or father or mother, respect and identity, or children, responsibility, or fields, security, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much. He gives representations of different kinds of things that would incentivize different people and keep them from really, really, really being willing to trust God and follow him. What we do with sin and with these kinds of passages is miss the means for the end. When Jesus says, don't do this sin, we run around condemning people. And we don't realize that when Jesus was talking about it, he was going after something deeper, something true about where people's hearts were at. Because if this changes, this changes. He was trying to heal. He was trying to, to, to like create good life that would bear good fruit. We're over here trying to control and condemn Okay, when Jesus talks about selling your possessions, he's talking to a specific individual and trying to ask a diagnostic question that would really get this guy to see what, what's holding him back from really following God. We see that, and then we go run around and tell everybody, um, if you have any money in your bank account, you must be a sinner. If you own your own home, you must be a sinner. Because Jesus said, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Jesus was asking a diagnostic question of that individual to surface a truth and a reality. We miss the means and we think it's an end. What's the end is that we would be willing. Will you follow me? That deep down here, we're okay being last now and trusting God that that's going to somehow flip upside down and we're going to be first later. Many who are first now will be last, and many who are last will be first. Wow, my sense of significance, my sense of security is all, my sense of control is all messed up with that equation. I'm letting go of what's real, and I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. I can't really see it. This I could see. I can't really see this, but I'm going to trust God that he's faithful. When I put my faith in him, he'll be faithful. He'll, when I put my trust in him, he's trustworthy. I'm going to walk by faith. 
and it might feel like last now, but I know that it's going to work out. He's trying to ask, am I willing to follow? And if he was going to come here and look at each of us, the diagnostic question would be different. So we read scripture and we, we take these cut flowers again and this thing at the top, but we don't understand that it's a principle that points to something deeper. When you interpret scripture, you, you look for what is the timeless principle that's going on in the context of what's being spoken. You surface that timeless principle and then you apply it to, to, to life today. That's called the hermeneutic bridge. You've already forgotten that. That's cool. It's, it's interpreting scripture understanding what the principle is, and then taking that principle and applying it in today's context. So when we're doing this, interpreting Scripture, Jesus is surfacing with diagnostic conversations the truth of what is keeping people back. And he's saying, whatever the category is, if you overcome that and truly follow, you'll be blessed. And he gives a whole wide range. So the principle is, is there something holding you back from really being willing to follow God? Is it what's on your computer? Is it money? Is it your obsession with security in retirement? Is it your fear of people, your desire to fit in, the fact that you don't think you're ever going to be married and you can't get over it? Is it that health problem that you really think is going to take your life and you just don't know what's going to happen on the other side of the grave? Because that's really murky, isn't it? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it? Is it control? We are a nation of confident individuals and Bend is like number three in the country. I saw like a month or two ago on CNN. Third most entrepreneurial city in America, something like that. Like it's either first, third, or fifth, but I think it's third. But we're like way up there on entrepreneurial. Is it control? Is it disappointment? Is it disillusionment? Is it... The principle is what is going on even beneath your level of understanding that if you really paid attention to, you could pull to the surface. Is there something that really plays bigger than the invitation that this king, that, that God has made about following him and walking by faith and trusting and understanding how would we apply that today. It doesn't mean go sell all your possessions. When we say give your life away at Antioch, it's, it's a common refrain. What we're really saying is go figure out that thing that you've got. And it might be a one-time thing. And then it lasts the rest of your life. You make one adjustment and then you're on the path. It might be a regular thing. I don't know. It might just be a willingness to walk like this. We're not determining what that is, but we're saying that thing that you think is your life, would you be willing to lay that aside and give that away so that you can have hands here for God to give you a different kind of life, the life he wants you to have, which is simply following him in the way he's created you to go with your gifts, your talents, your experiences, your opportunities, your desires, all of it, relationships, context. And he will use you. That's what we mean by give your life away. And, and, and it's asking a diagnostic question. Are you really willing to take valuable things, urgent things, and say there's something more valuable, more urgent over here? And so we understand these paradoxical things where 
Jesus says, sell all your possessions, but then flip over just a page or two. End of Matthew. In the end of Matthew, we see Jesus being anointed. Matthew 26. And he gets anointed, and the disciples, verse 8, see this, and they're like, what a waste. It's like a year's wages of perfume. What a waste. Jesus didn't even have a bath yet. He was dirty, and you put perfume on him. A year's worth of wages. What a waste. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money could have been given to a poor. The poor. What do you expect Jesus to say? You're right. That should have been sold, and the money should have been given to the poor, because the poor are all that matters. Don't you remember what I said to the rich young ruler? But Jesus doesn't say that. He says to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Because what was going on deep down here, her incentive her heart, her desire, explicit memories, implicit memories, motive, all of it was what was right. Jesus talked about selling to the poor to elicit something wrong. What this woman was doing was right. And Jesus like, that's what I want to affirm. And the disciples are like, man, we're confused. Like, we're confused. And Jesus is like, man, you don't get it. It's not the cut flower. It's not the surface. It's what's going on down here. It's what's true about here. Does that make sense? We have to understand this about justice too. We're not a church that talks about justice because it's fashionable. We're not a church that talks about justice just because whatever. Justice is the grand diagnostic question that God tends to ask all throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 58, he says, you go and fast and you go and pray, you religious people. But that's not the kind of fasting I asked for. I asked for you in laying aside yourself that you would be available to be used by me to help those that are sick and needy and oppressed and vulnerable. And if you're not doing that, it shows something deeper that at this level, What's incentivizing you isn't me, but yourself. And justice was always a grand diagnostic question that God used for his people to see if they were truly willing to follow him. Because with justice, in in a human rights class I taught at the college last year, I took an egg and I had two people throwing the egg back and forth. And I was like, this is a good, healthy society. It's a give and a take. We submit to other people's rights they submit to ours, and we get along really well. You know, you, you, you yielded a yield sign. They yielded a yield sign, you know. I mean, everybody's, you know, kind of abiding by the rules, and we're a pretty law-abiding society, and, and we're throwing this egg back and forth, and it works for everybody. And I took an egg. I didn't realize it was going to splatter because I got egg on a bunch of girls' clothes. But I took an egg, and I slammed it into a table, and that's when it splattered. And I said, and so here's this other two people, and they're still throwing the egg back and forth. And I said, justice 
is stepping out of a society where there's a give and a take and it's working for you and stepping into the messy context, messy, messy context, where nothing really comes back other than knowing that you're doing what's right and you involve yourself in the rebuilding of shalom, the reconciliation of all things, helping those who cannot help themselves. That's true justice. See, so this diagnostic question that, that God always asks, Isaiah 58, about justice is really surfacing. Are you willing to be last? Orphans and widows. Why orphans and widows? Pure religion is this, to look after orphans and widows. Because orphans and widows don't give back. I think I've told you before when, when that verse led me to go to an old folks' home because I was like, man, where are orphans and widows? And I was like, I don't know. I could go to an old folks' home. Maybe I can find widows there. And I was like, it'll be really cool. I'll hear a bunch of great World War II stories. And so I, like, I was like, I'm going to learn why this verse is in the Bible. And so I went to this old folks' home, and I, I didn't hear any good World War II stories. And every week it was difficult, and it was messy, and I heard weird stories, and I would hear the same story every week, and I was just like, man, this is killing me, and then I had to take a 70-year-old guy that I had made a friendship with who started grabbing and groping college-age girls that were coming in, and I had to sit him down and, and, and break my relationship with him in, in a sense by telling him that wasn't okay. And I'm driving back from this whole thing, and I'm like, this sucks, God. I'm getting nothing out of this. No World War II stories, no anything. And in the middle of driving back, and I was like, I'm getting nothing out of this, all of a sudden it hit. That's why it's pure. It's pure because the only reason I'm doing it is because God's asked me to do it. I'm willing to follow him in that. If I was getting something back, it would be mixed my incentive would be that thing. There's a real danger with justice these days. I fight it. Do you? I mean, do you fight? I fight it. There's a part of justice which is like, man, let me wear it on my clothes so people know I'm into justice because then they'll think I'm cool. I mean, there's a temptation that way. And if that's the incentive, it's not. It's like, it's like the perfume and the selling the poor thing. It's not about that. It's about this. And what's true, problem with truth is is that we have to live by it. That we try and hide untruths and it seeks us out. The problem with truth is it shines pretty deep. And justice, if it's justice, is something we do because we're we're willing to follow God into these places where we get nothing in return. And it's pure religion. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. What's the metaphor there? Be last, but be with me. Well, how's that going to pay off? Ah, that's where faith comes in. You see? So we get these paradoxical things, but when we understand that Jesus is calling us to follow him, And then the other half of his parables usually are trying to ask diagnostic questions to show us the hiddenness of the human heart that only we have private access to. And then half the time we don't even realize what is going on because we delude ourselves and we allow allow ourselves to think things that that are better than they are, truer than they are, and we, we hide our own motives from ourselves. 
He's asking questions to draw that to the surface. And the problem with truth is it gets all the way down to that level of incentive and motive and what's at the heart of of everything. And the beauty of this is is this. Does that feel like a tall order? It's where Jesus' disciples were like, man, this feels difficult. And Jesus is like, it's not, it's not. With, With you guys, with us, with people, it's difficult. But with God, it's not. God will plant a seed in you if you are humble enough, willing enough, broken enough, desperate enough, sick enough to take what he will give you and that will help grow you into someone who follows Christ. That's, a, that's good news. You know, the word gospel just means good news. And the problem we don't understand good news all the time is because we don't understand what sick is. When we understand how difficult this is, then all of a sudden we're like, man, I need help with this. It requi- being a Christian requires more than what I feel like I have the energy or the capacity or the will to even do. Man, I need help with that. Well, guess what? There's grace. That, that's the help. That's good news. And so the question this morning is simply this. Will you, will you follow Christ? When you got saved, what were you really saying you would, would do? When, when you said, when you started calling yourself a Christian, this morning, like if you're saying, man, I really want to be with God, will you really follow him? Are you willing enough to even receive his help and, and just turn it all over and say, God, you've got you to help me do this? Are you willing enough to, to grab a couple other people and say, man, I need help with this. I need support. I need others in my life. I'm too weak on my own. This whole business of, of, of Christianity, man, we got to go after it with a desperation that far exceeds our typical kind of motive or energy or, or, or willingness. we got to be ruthless with this. That when we get there, we can say we left mother, brother, father, daughter, Houses, fields, security, comfort, control. And we were actually able to give that stuff up to follow. We've got to be ruthless. We've got to be needy. We've got we to gotta desperately cry out to God. We've got to surround ourselves with other Christians. We've got to go deeper than we typically go and realize that truth will really show us what's going on. Um, we need good news. We need grace. Father, we do commit ourselves to you. It's your plan that's been working since the beginning, all the way in the beginning, to reconcile broken, needy, conflicted, confused, depressed, prideful, arrogant people to yourself. We want to know what's true It scares us, but we really do want to know it because only if we admit what's really true and turn it over to you are we going to find peace. Are we going to be knit back into that fabric of what is good and it's going to be shalom, that that just deep peace that we all long for. Peace with ourselves, with who we are. No more insecurities, just peace in our relationships and peace with our future. And just, God, we, we really hunger at a deep level for that to be right with you. And we know, Jesus said it, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we will be filled. 
So Father, let that be what's true about us today. Our hunger, let our desires, let our, our appetite for you be what's true. And then may we reach out and try and lay hold of you, your help that you provide, your love, your invitation, your hand that, that's gonna pull us out of the pit. Father, let, uh, let us look to you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.